This week we look at Turkey, China, the United Kingdom, Australia, and North Korea's nuclear program and President Trump's acceptance of a potentially historic meeting. Hi, and welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 16th of March, 2018. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. This week, we're looking at Turkey's war in Syria, China's troubled Xinjiang region, the alleged Russian assassinations occurring in the United Kingdom, and Australia potentially joining the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. We'll also be looking at North Korea's nuclear program, how we got to where we are today, and what potentially may be occurring in the future. Now to this week's roundup. First up, we're going to do an update on Turkey and its war against the Kurds in Syria. For more information, you can see our previous podcast for background on this topic. As previously predicted, the Trump administration has informed Turkey that it will attempt to rein in Kurdish fighters back to east of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River runs from Turkey through Syria and then Iraq. Kurdish forces moved to block rebel and ISIS supply lines from Turkey by capturing large portions of the Syrian border territory with Turkey. Since then, Turkey, worried about separatists in its own regions, has wanted them removed. Now, with their attacks on Kurdish-controlled territory in northwest Syria, focused on the city of Afrin, they're slowly recapturing ground, and the Trump administration's deal with Turkey reduces the chance of conflict breaking out between the two NATO allies of Turkey and the United States of America. This deal was initially made by President Obama, and returned to for use of Turkish airbases to stage airstrikes on Islamic State targets in Syria. How the USA will be able to convince the Kurds to pull back is yet to be seen. After Turkey began its assault, the Kurds pulled their forces from fighting the weak Islamic State in the south to face the might of Turkey's military in the northwest. This is also a bitter pill to swallow for American military forces in the area, who have been generally fond of Kurdish fighters who they have been working alongside for several years now. In response to Turkey's offensive, the European Parliament approved a motion for a call to Turkey to halt its military offensive in the Afrin region. The European Parliament calls for a focus on IS and other militant Islamist groups. Turkey's Minister for EU Affairs, Omer Çelik, and the President Erdogan both dismissed the idea of halting the offensive. Now onto China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is located in the northwest of China. It is large, but a lightly populated area of 1.6 million square kilometers. The Xinjiang region borders Kazakhstan and Mongolia, among other nations. It is an important region because it contains many natural resources, such as oil, natural gas, and minerals. For instance, the oil and petrochemical sector accounts for more than half the local economy. However, this has always been a troubled region in China, as it contains an ethnic minority group known as the Uyghurs. This population is generally Sunni Muslim and has been an ongoing separatist problem within the Chinese nation. The Uyghurs state that their land was taken from them by the Chinese in the formation of the Chinese nation state. Over the years, there have been several separatist movements in the region. The separatist groups generally want to turn the Xinjiang region into a new East Turkestan. However, this means it's got a potential fertile ground for Islamic militant movements, which worries China. There have been attacks in the modern era, usually involving knives or bombs. Attempts to crack down on these movements often further increase discontent. For instance, security spending in Xinjiang has nearly doubled this last year and now far exceeds what is spent on healthcare or social welfare. Now, this is tangentially related to Turkey's war in Syria, as reportedly there is footage showing a Uyghur dressed in Turkish military uniform and wearing East Turkestan patches 
Openly declaring war against China in Mandarin, this footage is stated to be located in the Syrian Hatay province, bordering Afrin and Syria. And these troops would be rebels backed by the Turkish government attempting to force out the Kurdish forces there. Now, the Xinjiang province is a decent distance from Turkey, yet we do have the small instances of Uyghurs heading overseas to act as foreign fighters. And there's worries in China that when these Uyghurs return, they may bring with them knowledge and skills that will assist them in their separatist uprisings. This is another important impact because the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, is an infrastructure project that links Pakistan to China via the Xinjiang region. Part of this infrastructure project is to set up pipelines for oil and natural gas to get energy resources from the Middle East through to China without China having to ship them down through past India and past Japan and the Philippines. However, running in this infrastructure project through to a separatist region is potentially troublesome for China as the Uyghurs may engage in sabotage to undermine the Chinese economy to have their demands met. Now onto the United Kingdom. Big in the news this week has been the alleged poisoning of Sergei Skripal by Russia. This attack, which was done with a nerve agent known as the Newcomer in English, was first developed in Russia. And the UK government has stated that it believes the Russian authorities are behind the attack. Sergei Skripal was a career officer for the Soviet military intelligence. In 1995, he was recruited by British Secret Service, the MI6, and reportedly handed over details of up to 300 Russian agents working abroad. He was sentenced in 2006 to 13 years in a labor camp for treason, but four years later he was freed, traded with three other convicted Russian spies for 10 Russian sleeper agents caught in the US. Generally, these Cold War-style spy swaps guarantee the survival of people swapped, otherwise it undermines the entire process. However, recently this nerve agent was used on this former Russian spy and his daughter in the city of Salisbury, and they both remain in a critical condition in hospital. There's another high-profile assassination, such as the 2006 murder by radioactive polonium of a former FSB officer, Alexander Litvinenko. The British government inquiry determined that the attack was most probably ordered by Putin. Now, with any of these kind of attacks, it's always hard to know who the real culprit was. Some analysts would state that this is a potential false flag operation, the idea that uh, the attack was done by another Western nation or UK itself to try and generate anti-Russian sentiment. However, considering the other deaths in the past, it's quite possible that the Russian government or a faction with the Russian government did carry out these attacks. In response, the UK has expelled many Russian diplomats. It has increased checks on private flights, freezing of Russian state assets where there is evidence they may be used to threaten life or property in the UK, suspension of all high-level bilateral contacts, and a World Cup boycott by ministers and the royal family. Now, the most interesting, perhaps, of this is the potential for assets in the UK being seized by the UK government. Quite a few Russian citizens have moved their assets out of Russia into the UK to keep them safe from being potentially taken by the Russian government or being taxed heavily. And the Russian government has been trying to get many of these funds back. However, if these citizens believe that the UK may freeze or seize these funds, they may end up taking them back to Russia and risk losing them with Putin rather than having them seized by the UK government. The UK has also been backed rhetorically by the United States of America, France and Germany, among other nations. Russia will likely engage in a tit-for-tat response with expelling UK diplomats as well. However, escalation from there is unknown because 
There's not much you can do once you start breaking down diplomatic relations. There may be a, a shadow war going on in the background, but on the surface, there won't be that much that can really go on. We'll keep updated with anything that does come to light. Finally, on to Australia, and Indonesia's President Joko Widodo has indicated his support for Australia to join the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Now, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations include 10 members, including Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, Brunei, Vietnam, Myanmar, and Indonesia. Australia in the past has tried to break into ASEAN and to become more closely allied to it due to the potential economic and diplomatic opportunities within the grouping. However, due to the historical, geographical, and cultural differences between ASEAN and Australia, there hasn't been much progress in Australia joining. While Australia might like to join, there's also the question of would it be worth it? ASEAN is run by a consensus model where all the nations involved have to agree to something for it to go forward. However, this means everyone involved has a veto motion effectively. Therefore, it would be hard to get Australia in because as long as one of the countries decided that they didn't want Australia to join for whatever reason, they could effectively veto the motion. The most likely candidates for that veto would probably be Myanmar or Cambodia, who the Australian government have criticized in the past. But aside from that, the other countries in the grouping also know that as more countries are added, then there are more countries with potential veto power and it's more likely things won't proceed and it may bog down the association even further. They've already realized this problem over the South China Sea crisis, where Cambodia has been able to veto motions, uh, it's making statements against China's expansions there. While joining ASEAN might have little practical impact, it's still good from a symbolic point of view and would demonstrate a closer relationship with those nations. We'll let you know if Australia and Indonesia make any progress in this area. That's it for this week's roundup. Now to this week's deeper dive. This week we're looking at North Korea's nuclear program and President Trump's acceptance of a meeting with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. So how we're going to structure this is a brief history of North Korea's nuclear program up until now, and then what the potential in the future may be. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also known as North Korea, has been pursuing nuclear weapons for quite a long time now. First, they requested assistance from the Soviet Union, and then later on, Communist China. However, both of those nations rebuffed their requests. In response, they pursued the weapons on their own and have been slowly making progress over time. As this nuclear program continued, though, it troubled other nations such as South Korea, Japan, the United States of America. There was a deal made between the United States of America and North Korea to denuclearize the North Koreans. This deal was known as the Agreed Framework between the United States of America and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This was signed in 1994 by President Bill Clinton. This was a political agreement rather than legislation that was signed by the legislative bodies of the House and Senate in America. The plan was to provide different nuclear reactors to North Korea that would be harder to weaponize in return for the North Koreans shutting down their program. And in the meantime, while they were being built, that heavy crude oil would be shipped to the country to maintain its electricity while the process was being undergone. However, the legislative bodies in America were skeptical of this somewhat, and they delayed funding, which delayed USA meeting its deadlines. Some analysts believe the United States was trying to delay the regime as Kim Jong-un had just died, and there was a, a chance for the regime to collapse. With this insufficient funding, the United States wasn't handling up to its side of the deal, 
However, secretly, the North Koreans were still pursuing the nuclear weapons program, which meant they weren't holding up to the agreement either. Now, whether they would have continued secretly if the United States had been more on time with its uh, fuel shipments, we'll never know. But this problem between both sides not trusting each other is still there. This agreement came to a head when the most recent Bush president came to power. And in his 2002 State of the Union address, named the North Koreans in an axis of evil alongside Iraq and Iran. Considering what happened to Iraq, it's not difficult to see that the North Koreans would want to have a guarantee of their own survival. It has also come to light that Dr. Abdul Khan, a senior nuclear scientist from Pakistan, has assisted the North Koreans. He provided technical assistance, but it's unknown if the assistance was limited to just this individual, was more significant or state-sponsored by Pakistan, or that a political faction in Pakistan was pushing for this assistance. Considering the toppling of governments in Iraq and Libya, both who didn't have nuclear weapons at their disposal, North Korea is very worried about the USA coming in and removing its regime through force. Since Kim Jong-un, the current supreme leader of North Korea, rose to power in 2011, there has been a steady acceleration of their nuclear and missile testing while he was consolidating his power base through extensive executions of potential rivals. This culminated in 2017 with the launch of two intercontinental ballistic missiles, the second of which could potentially reach the continental United States of America. Before these missiles were even launched, there have been several nuclear tests increasing in size and rapidity. And in 2016, the United Nations Security Council imposed additional sanctions on North Korea. This eventually resulted in a reduction in the amount of crude oil being able to be sold to North Korea. Now, this has allegedly forced North Korea to secretly supply and transfer oil at sea to get back some kind of extra oil to make up the deficit. This is a potential sign that they're desperate and may be related to the more conciliatory approach to 2018 that Kim Jong-un's foreign policy has put forward. The recent Winter Olympic Games in South Korea saw a united women's ice hockey team from North and South Korea. And Kim Jong-un's sister was part of the Winter Olympic delegation. A new South Korean government that was recently elected has also been pushing for a diplomatic route and last week, a South Korean envoy, when speaking to President Trump, offered Kim Jong-un's invitation for a one-on-one -on -one meeting, which President Trump has agreed to. This is a potentially historic meeting since no sitting president has ever met with the supreme leader of North Korea. Now, this meeting may not go ahead as between now and when it occurs, there may be interruptions or changes that cause it to be canceled by either side. There's also a big risk when leaders meet like this, and it's very unusual for a, an ad hoc meeting to occur without prior groundwork. Usually lower level experts will spend months or years doing groundwork so that leaders are mainly doing a, a photo opportunity and signing paper rather than being associated with a potentially failed attempt at negotiations. President Trump's position on North Korea has vacillated over time. He initially signaled a willingness to meet with Kim Jong-un on his campaign in America for presidency. But then, once he became president, had changed his tack, calling the North Korean leader Little Rocket Man and promising fire and fury if North Korea attempted to attack the United States of America. This sudden acceptance has also coincided with the sudden firing of Rex Tillerson, the State Secretary of the United States of America. Tillerson and Trump have been at odds for some time over countries such as Russia, Syria, Iran, and North Korea. 
Tillerson was seen as someone who was the status quo and was more inclined to favor stability and continuity than sudden changes. And when Tillerson has in the past been quite open to talks, Trump had publicly stated that he should not waste his time with negotiations with North Korea. And now suddenly Trump has changed his position and has fired Tillerson. It sends a bit of a mixed signal. Now, this is most likely just because they clashed on so many various issues. Trump decided that it was time to get rid of him and replace him with someone more in line with his uh, mindset. As an aside, Australia's foreign minister, Julie Bishop, actually was informed about Tillerson's firing before it occurred, which shows how closely aligned Australia and high officials, senior officials in America are. Rex Tillerson, uh, as state secretary, has been replaced by the director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, who is a more hawkish Trump loyalist um, and whose foreign policy positions are much more closely aligned with the president's. As a side effect, Mike Pompeo's hawkish side would send a message to North Korea that USA will not be an easy pushover. Now, North Korea and the United States of America have vastly different interests. North Korea wants to guarantee its own survival, especially its regime's survival, whereas the United States of America wants to see North Korea's nuclear weapons disarmed. Because the regime links its survival to its nuclear program, that puts them at direct odds with each other, which would apparently leave not much room for negotiations. And what's extra interesting about this agreement is that North Korea has done so without any preconditions, such as an easing of sanctions, or that South Korea and the United States of America stop their military maneuvers and exercises they conduct each year. Now, it may be that the sanctions and pressure that has been placed on the country has finally been too much, and there's a potential chance that Trump may be able to extract some concessions from the North Koreans and potentially a historic denuclearization. So this leaves us with three general possible outcomes for the future. The first outcome would be denuclearization, which would be potentially to the benefit of everyone, assuming guarantees are in place to protect the North Korean regime. And it's very hard to give that kind of guarantee because in the future, a different president may change their policy, someone else may decide to attack regardless. Because it's a self-help system, the North Koreans can only really rely on themselves and maybe China as an ally. And so it'd be very, very difficult for them to accept any kind of guaranteed or verbal agreement that they wouldn't be attacked in the future. The second potential outcome is the status quo. So no real change. North Korea will still have its weapons. It may slowly increase them over time, um, or there may be a, a set of continuous talks with no real change. This would be kicking the can down the road and not a good outcome from the United States perspective as the North Koreans would slowly become more powerful and that would place more and more cities in the US at risk. Now, the third possible outcome would be escalation. This would occur if President Trump returned from the meeting without getting any concessions and effectively said, well, I tried my best, but they won't work with me. I'm still committed to denuclearizing Korea, but I'm going to do it through force now. This would be a potentially terrible outcome for the region as millions of North and South Koreans would die and the fallout could play over the region with additional countries being drawn into the conflict, and it would effectively be a continuation or a restarting of the Korean War. Now, the most likely is status quo. Denuclearization, as we said before, is very, very hard to guarantee the North Koreans that you won't attack in the future. And escalation is, is such a horrible outcome that would give any president pause to order such a strike. However, considering this very unique outcome, with the first president of America meeting with the supreme leader of North Korea, anything is potentially possible. That's it for this week's podcast.
You can find us at envoyfpa.org to find our website, or you can contact us at our email, envoyuwa at gmail.com. You can send us a request for a topic you'd like us to cover or questions about something we've already covered. We'll be back next week with a pick of the news and new foreign policy analysis. 